Welcome everyone. Talk Racing to Me episode 13 has arrived. I'm your host Naomi Chucker and I have a very special guest coming on today's show, Amy Zimmerman. She's Santa Anita Park's senior vice president and executive producer and a long-standing NBC sports producer as well of the Triple Crown races, the Breeders' Cup, as well as producing Olympic Games and other sports. And her success has truly spoken for itself with her having played instrumental roles in 26 Eclipse Award winning, 14 Emmy Award winning and four International Samocast Award receiving productions. I mean, it's quite the number. And in addition, she's played a very important role in my life, quite frankly being the reason I'm in the United States today. During my Groffin Flying Start period, I got the opportunity to spend a month with her at Santa Anita Park, a time during which she provided me with my on-air debut at the track and took me under her wing during Justify's Triple Crown winning Belmont NBC Sports production. So all in all, she made me fall in love with horse racing in the United States and really spurring me to pursue a means to return upon graduation, which I did as part of the New York Racing Association's team, among which many have worked with her and or learned the craft from her. So she's really has this umbrella influence in broadcasting and horse racing, and I feel very, very lucky that uh, to be considering her as my mentor. Well, we discuss her start within the horse racing industry and the journalistic aspect and broadcasting side of it, what the atmosphere is like during a major live sportcast, her memories of some of the greatest trainers that were based on the Santa Anita backstretch, and so much more. I'm really, really excited to be bringing her on this show today. And before we start, the team at the Inner Money Media has not been sitting still. Uh, Matt Bernier has a new show that just dropped. Spencer has Andy Serling on Redboard Rewind, providing some really great handicapping insight. And JK Plus One has Javier Castellano's agent, John Panagot on there and I will certainly be catching up on the shows that I haven't had the chance to listen to yet. So make sure to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss any of these shows, news and content being released on a daily basis. Also, I don't need to go over last weekend's action as the aforementioned team as well as PTF on the flagship shows has already done so. But what a monstrous performance by Facoma in the Met Mal. And he was looking the part when I visited him at the George Weaver barn the day before when he had just arrived and he was having a pick of grass and we needed some footage for our show. So I got the chance to go up there and he did look amazing as well in the paddock on game day. He's such a gorgeous animal with actually quite an interesting action for anyone that likes to watch the replay or the head on a couple of times. He paddles inwards, nearly crossing his front legs over. However, according to jockey Harry Castellano, he feels like a Cadillac. So back to today's incredible guest, we'll begin by discussing NBC Sports. Uh, Amy, you've been with them for over 30 years as a key member of their production team. And you took me to the production of the Belmont Stakes in the year that Justify won, which was an incredible experience. You also shared on Twitter a wonderful little clip of what it is like in the truck during a live racing broadcast. And what is it like preparing for these big shows, especially when you have a triple crown contender competing? Well, you prepare, you prepare for all eventualities, whether the horse wins, whether the horse loses, whether the horse just gets beat, whether the horse, God forbid, gets hurt. Um, you prepare for all of them so you're not surprised by any of them, and you can react accordingly. The thing that I remember most about American Pharaoh and Justify as well is that as crazy and as loud as it was outside in the racetrack, that is the quietest I have ever heard a control room um, both times, because the only voices that we wanted to hear were Rob Hyland, the producer, and Drew Esikoff, the director. And we just wanted to stop talking and listen to what they were calling so that you could react accordingly. 
So was it more a sense of professionalism and knowing that you have a very important job to do or is there still that excitement and, you know, the special feeling of that moment? It's it's always a special feeling. You know, live TV to me is always like driving a bus without any brakes down a windy mountain road and the goal is to get to the bottom without killing you or anybody else on the bus. Um, you know, again, you have to react accordingly. But it, it was kind of cool. One of the memories I'll always have about American Pharaoh is, you know, we had come so close so many times with California Chrome or, you know, then, you know, with All Have Another, not even making it to the starting gate, it's funny side, you know, we, Smarty Jones, we'd all been there on the cusp, but we'd never quite seen the deal get done. And when American Pharaoh crossed the line and we got done and we got into replays and Rob looks over and he goes, hey, Sunshine, are you crying? And I, and I was, you know, it's, you, you couldn't help it. It's just like suddenly, you know, all of these years and we had been doing the Triple Crown together since 2001 and, and had had so many close calls and to realize and to understand the very, very special seat that we had at the table for that event was pretty huge. Yeah, I definitely can imagine how special that would be. Did you get the chance to reflect upon that moment later on in the evening when you did finish the production? No, I think at that point in time, you were just exhausted, mentally, physically, just exhausted. I mean, those shows are, they're beasts. And, and I mean, as you know, from sitting with us, you're not on the air for, you know, you're on the air for, gosh, eight hours and during the day and the most important half hour it comes at the end. So you're, you're physically drained, you're mentally drained, and then you have to really step up to the plate and have, you know, all your synapses firing at a hundred percent, um, for the very end of the marathon. And so, you know, it's like you run 26 miles and then you have to run, you know, a hundred yard dash right at the end. That's a fair bit of fitness needed for that. And you talked about you're going on a bus ride and you're just trying to get home safely and, and get there. Can you, for those listeners that don't know much about a production, sort of explain that concept? Um, well, you, you've got a, a, a racing show, as I've heard it explained many times, a racing show is basically a two-hour studio show with a two-minute live event thrown in the process of it. Um, you know, you're setting up your stories, you're setting up your features, Whereas, you know, some other live sporting events, um, you know, a baseball game or a basketball game are, you know, two-minute studio shows with a two-hour sporting event thrown in the middle of it. So it really is, um, you put it together sort of like a symphony. All of the acts have to fit together and they should all build a to a crescendo for when the race happens. And remember, the audience builds throughout the day. So you don't want to use your best stuff early because you're speaking to fewer people. So sometimes we repeat stuff, but we really want to make sure that we save the nuggets for the very end. How much time goes into preparing for each show? Now, I know that this is a, a template like weeks and months in advance. You're mapping out the schedule of the year because NBC Sports covers Triple Crown races, races as well as the Breeders' Cup, also some of the Breeders' Cup Challenge races. But how... How in advance of each show do you start, you know, having your production calls and setting up what you would like to do? We start the Triple Crown shows at the end of January, right after the week after, uh, really the week after Pegasus. We'll dive into the Triple Crown and we'll start. It's, it's almost a weekly call between first part of February until we get on site in Louisville, usually the first week of May. There's definitely a, a lot of production involved. And in terms of your own favorite aspects of it, is there a race that you enjoy the most producing with NBC Sports? Wow, that's a great question. I think I enjoy the Preakness the most um, because it's just a different sense of energy. At the Derby, you're focusing sort of on 80 stories because you have 20 horses and you have a story in the owner, the trainer, the jockey, and the horse themselves. So there's 80 stories, you know, or possibilities to cover. At the Derby, I mean, sorry, at the Preakness, it's pretty easy because it's the Derby winner and everybody else. So it's a, it's just a different type of animal. Um, Pimlico does a great job with the hospitality and the way that 
the stakes barn is laid out and it's just, it's more relaxed. It's not a less important race. It's just a different feel and a different vibe. And, um, it's just, it's just an easier show to do while still being a hugely important show. I'm very much looking forward to experiencing the Pimlico Preakness atmosphere myself this year. It'll be my first Preakness. So I hope, uh, even though possibly most likely we won't have any fans, that there still be something special going on there. Of course, everything being different this year. But talk a little bit about the fact that this is the majority of times the same team traveling all over the country to all these races. Is it like a family sort of it's, traveling it's ex- around? It's exactly like a family. It's There's no other way to put it. Um, and that, honestly, with the COVID situation this year, that's been you know, emotionally, some of the hardest parts for me personally is that I miss my family. I miss my other family. And they're as much a part of my life as my own family. And some of them, you know, some of them I've known for 30 plus years. We've quite literally grown up together. We've, you know, seen each other's, you know, milestone successes and heartbreaking losses and marriages and children and deaths of our parents and you know we've experienced together everything that a family experiences there's really sort of no other way to describe that that seems quite incredible you've been with NBC Sports for multiple decades how do you feel that the coverage of horse racing for this network has developed well we used to only do one one horse race a year we only used to do the the Breeders Cup and it used to be a four-hour show now I can't even tell you the amount of hours that, you know, NBC does live horse racing throughout the course of the year. It's um, it's a f- phenomenal commitment that they've made. Um, the Triple Crown since 2001, um, the, the Breeders' Cup, the Breeders' Cup Challenge Series, the road to the Kentucky Derby. It's a uh, it's it's really it's really a significant investment. Well, I'm very glad that they continue to invest in horse racing because, well, it's a sport very close to my heart, but I know it is to yours as well. And we'll dive into that aspect of it um, shortly. Love to move on to the other part, the other role that you have, which is uh, at Santa Anita Park, where you're a senior vice president and executive producer. And I've had the wonderful experience of spending about a month with you in California in probably one of the most beautiful race courses I've ever seen. I mean, I don't think anyone that's visited Santa Anita would disagree with me on that one. I'd love to get started with the horsey aspect. You frequently would wander into the barn area and you took me to see the Clydesdales. And who were some of your favorite trainers over the years and horses that you went to visit? Uh, Charlie Whittingham, without question, is my favorite trainer. Um, He is... You know, it's hard to believe that Charlie has been gone now for more than 20 years, and he still far and away holds the the record for number of stakes wins here at Santa Anita. He was very kind to me and kind of took me under his wing and when I was just starting out quite young and would walk me around the barn area after I sort of passed his test and would introduce me as, hey, do you know my girl Amy? Yeah, she knows what she's doing. And I'm forever grateful for that, but I'm forever grateful for getting to know him and to being able to, you know, get a small peek inside what kind of horseman he was. You said when you passed his test, what was his test? (laughs) His test, uh, the very first stall he has um, right by his office, he had a big bay horse in there, big, beautiful bay horse with a head like a Clydesdale named Swink. And one day I went back there and Swink was wearing a halter that said Dr. Daly on it. And it said Dr. Daly. And then the pedigree plate, funny the things you remember, was by Quack out of a mirror called Blow Up the Second. And I was screwing around with the horse waiting for Charlie to pick his head up out of his desk. And I was playing with the horse and, you know, it was it was all fun and games. He had a big bushy forelock. And Charlie yelled out from his office, he goes, hey don't you be messing with Dr. Daly. And I looked at him and I said, hey, Charlie, I said, that's not Dr. Daly. I said, that's Swink. I said, you know that. And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, I know that. But I didn't know you knew that. And from then on, we were good. It was just very funny, almost, you know, kind of bizarre situation. But um, after that, I was, I was good. 
eye for detail, right? I think that makes a lot of the trainers as good as they are. Yeah. Who would have been your favorite horse in his barn? Now, I remember when we were talking about Charlie Wynn, the first thing I said was Sunday Silence, just because I've been such a massive fan of his sire line. And he obviously won the Breeders' Cup Classic and the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness Stakes. But who was your favorite Charlie Whittingham trained horse? Hands down, Ferdinand. Ferdinand wasn't a horse. He was a dog with shoes, <laughs> which is what made what happened to him, you know, all the worse. He was absolutely a dog with shoes. He was one of the kindest horses I've ever been around in my whole life. And would you go and visit him or what would you do? No, I'd go back to the barn. I'd visit him. Um, Charlie, I, uh, one of my fondest memories, and I think I've, I've told you this, is Fernand was actually retired when he was on the plane on the way back to Kentucky for the Breeders' Cup in 88, which he didn't run in. He went to the barn and went back to Claiborne. But when... When he was there, I think it was a Tuesday or something before they had shipped him out. It was late in the afternoon, and Charlie was, and we were back there, and there wasn't anybody else around. And he said, what are you doing? I said, nothing. He says, well, grab the shank and take the red horse out. So to stand there with holding Ferdinand on the end of the shank at Churchill Downs, where he'd won the Kentucky Derby, was something I will never, ever forget. That is absolutely incredible. Now, I do remember that you told me this story, and wow, what a... What an experience. And do you still regularly roam around the backside at Santa Anita? I have to. You have to remember why you do what you do. Otherwise, it's just a job at a really pretty place. Pretty place it is indeed. But yes, I do remember you taking me around. And I I personally still go around too because I miss riding the horse and I miss being in frequent contact with them. I think it's actually one of the first things I did when I got back to Belmont is uh, Brittany Atras, Rob Atras, she took me around their barn and she told me every name of every single horse, what they were doing, which races they were going for, and basically just gave me time to pat them because she said she, she thought I needed it. So she knows me well. You have to touch noses. If, if you don't touch noses, this is just another job. Exactly. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Now, I also like to swing my leg over them and, and, you know, get a bit of feel for them on the track. But unfortunately, you can't do that at the moment. But touching noses and just being around the horses definitely is still at the heart of our sport. And I do hope that everyone that is on the other side of the fence or not on the backside still gets the chance to do that. Because I think that's still one of the key things why we do this job, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about a bit less fun aspects i guess um, santa anita park has had to really truly weather several storms this year in the form of the animal welfare protesters wanting to shut down the racetrack as well as navigating covid19 what was this like for you and your team it's been a very difficult 18 19 months um you know i i think we all anybody that has been in racing for a while that really kind of looked around, knew that the animal welfare issue was going to be hitting us in the face. You would have to be blindly ignorant to have believed otherwise. Um, you would not have taken the temperature of what happened at Ringling Brothers or what happened at SeaWorld or what happened in a number of other places and blissfully, you know, an ostrich. I never in my wildest dreams could have envisioned that the flashpoint would be here at Santa Anita. Never. But it was. And through a number of reasons that are still open to debate by all, um, it was. But at the same time, um, I'm incredibly proud to work for the company that I work with. Um, you know, Belinda Stronic herself came in and said, no, we're not doing business like this anymore. And the changes that have been put in place since a year ago, March, are generational and change. Um, some may not believe in them, but I strongly believe with every fiber of my being that they will be the future of the sport or there will be no sport. And as somebody who grew up and came into this business because the horse was the most important thing, uh, it's about damn time. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I very much support the new regulations and rules that have put in place because this is also a question I wanted to ask you. How do you envisage the future of horse racing in California as well as as a whole in the United States in light of everything that has happened over the last year? I think it's going to be a difficult row 
you know, to, to hoe here in California for the, you know, the, the next little bit until the rest of the country truly adapts and moves on. California, to a large degree, is an island unto itself. Um, you know, but we knew when we took on this challenge of trying to lead the transformation of the sport that field sizes were going to be smaller because there were going to be horses that were currently racing and weren't going to be able to compete. Um, but, you know, to the credit of first racing, that was, a, that was a challenge they were willing to take on because they believe enough in what the overall mission is. And, you know, if you go back and look at the, you know, what the asks for were for in that open letter that was published last March, the vast majority, the vast majority of those goals have been checked. And do you feel that horse racing still has a place in the current uh, sports environment or in the current society that has been seeing over the last multiple years a significant shift in the change of people's ethical beliefs? I believe it does if it's, yeah, I believe it does if it's done correctly. I believe it's still a very beautiful sport. And I believe that, um, you know, horses do want to win. You know, at the end of the day, no matter, it, the, the one, one factor you can never evaluate when you're trying to buy a horse is the size of his heart. These are innately herd animals. And what a race truly is, is who wants to be the leader of the herd. And it's, it's just something that is bred into them. And, but at the same time, we all have to take stock of words that we use. Um, we break a horse to, to ride. We break a horse to saddle. Just, you know, listen to how that sounds with your outside voice. While I know that's a word that's been used for probably hundreds of years, it sounds horrible. It does. No, it does. I'm actually trying to think is. In Dutch, in my Dutch nature coming out here, we have a different word for mm -hmm. breaking in horses. And it literally means to get them used to the saddle. It's like a two word, saddle muck maken. It means ease into the saddle, which sounds much nicer, doesn't it? It's a heck of a lot better than breaking the horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's move on to some of the other sports that you've been involved in, because you're not just a producer in horse racing you have already done three olympic games and your olympic games and you were going to produce your fourth one how did you get into that side because that is completely different from horse racing you know i was very lucky i worked with a producer named david michaels on the um on the breeders cup shows and david was they were nbc was expanding some of their olympic coverage in 2008 and he asked me because it's it's the same team that David has that did horse racing shows at that time also did gymnastics. He had an opening for somebody to to do some producing on the for gymnastics for the Olympics. And you know he I knew him, he knew me, we knew each other's style, and he asked me if I wanted to join the circus, and I did. And I went to Beijing, and it was you know you talk about again going back to the fact that it's a family. It was sort of like I went on a family vacation in another country because um, I traveled with my friends to the Great Wall and to different places and, you know, did, did gymnastics in the middle. So did you just cover gymnastics or did you cover other games as well? No, for, for 2008, we did gymnastics. And then uh, I was asked to come back and um, NBC now does a good portion of their Olympics from Stanford, Connecticut, from their headquarters. So in 2016, I went back there and Randy Moss, who is our, you know, our lead analyst for horse racing, um, was the host for the equestrian coverage from the games from Rio. So Randy and I did the games from Rio together from Stanford. And then in 2018, I did the winter games uh, and we, I covered curling. And when Becky Chapman, who's the coordinator producer for the Olympics, uh, called me and asked me, she's like, hey, Amy, I got a spot in the Olympics, uh, for the Winter Games. If you're interested, I'd love for you to produce curling. And I said, Becky, I'm incredibly honored and very flattered, but I don't know anything about curling. And she says, well, we know you, you know us, you know, you know how to do TV, you know how we like to do TV. And you got six months to figure out curling. So I went to my Amazon account. I got the book, I swear to God, Curling for Dummies. And, uh, 
I did curling for the Winter Olympics. I remember seeing that book on your desk. Yeah. <laughs> so does that mean when you're covering as a producer, obviously there is a need for basic knowledge of the sport that you're producing just to tell the stories and interact with the anchors? There is a basic knowledge, um, not to make an ass out of myself, but I actually thought I was a an interesting fit for curling because I knew a little bit about the sport. Um, I, I watched it during the winter Olympics. Normally I obviously didn't have that inside knowledge, but I've viewed myself as a viewer. So I spent a good deal of time. Our, our lead analyst was a gentleman named Pete Fenson, who up until 2018 was the only American to ever medal in the Olympics and curling. And poor Pete, I sent a, a good portion of the time camped out in his ear when he was explaining things, saying, please tell me what you're talking about. I don't understand. Um, and he did. God bless him. And I'm, it's curling is very much like racing in the standpoint that it's very insular. It's, uh, it's English words, but used in an order that you've never heard them put together. Um, you know, I, I threw the rock through, I threw the rock from the T line through the house and, you know, by the, it's like, what in the hell are you saying? Um, you know, racing has exactly the same issues. And, and, and we just like curling look down when people don't use the words correctly. You need to be a little more inclusive and get people underneath the tent. So I guess that's in a way your job as a producer, trying to make it as accessible to viewers as possible. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You know, in, in racing, we talk an awful lot about it's broadcasting, not narrow casting. Um, you know, the TVGs and before that, the, you know, the, the HRTVs of the world, that's narrow casting. You're going to an audience that already knows something about the sport. You assume they know something about the sport. I'm trying to talk to my mom or my dad um, who like horses, know a little bit about racing, but don't want to feel stupid. Nobody wants to feel stupid. And, you know, our job as broadcasters is to bring them underneath the tent to teach them something and to make them care. So how do you tread that fine line with your presenters and as a producer? Because that's very tricky, isn't it? You're trying to explain things, but you don't want to overly simplify it to make people feel like they should already know that. And then you're just explaining it to like an eight-year-old. But in a way, you want to make it that accessible. How, how do you prepare for that? I think it's about telling stories. I mean, it, 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 at the end of the day, if you ask me what I do for a living, I tell stories. Um, it, it's, it's interesting. I've recently, last weekend, I'm, I now I'm doing some pit producing for IndyCar. So it's, it's a weird transition to be doing a, a sport that I don't know as well as I do horse racing. Um, but I know something about it. But again, sometimes in listening to the talent, I will find myself having absolutely no idea what they're talking about. And it's my job to try and, um, you know, put it in language that certainly that I can understand. Well, I'm sitting here smiling because one of my questions was about your IndyCar uh, producing experience because I know nothing. Hell of a lot louder than horse racing. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine. I don't know anything about IndyCar racing or its coverage. If you would have said Formula One, I would have been well now. <laughs> but IndyCar racing, it's, it's it's like Formula One, but a tiny bit slower and a tiny bit smaller, um, but very similar. So what, it's very similar. What is it like to produce? What kind of shows do they set up, and 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 how how many people watch IndyCar racing? They actually last weekend um, it was combined with it was the IndyCar race on Saturday, then an Xfinity NASCAR race on Saturday afternoon, and then a the NASCAR Brickyard 400 on Sunday, and it was the the IndyCar race itself got 1.4 million, which is a huge number for them. It was the largest. I think they said it was the largest afternoon IndyCar race that was not the Indy 500 in six years. So. They were thrilled with the the ratings, so that's always a good thing. What was what would be normal audience size for NBC, NBC Sports uh, covering, let's say, British Cup Challenge race or even one of the Triple Crown races? It would be less than that. Well, the, the Triple Crown races are huge. The Triple Crown races are animals unto themselves. 
Yeah, the triple crown races, they're, they're their own animals. They, they, they live and breathe a different air than any other race that, that is offered. Right. So you said last Saturday, last weekend, does that mean you weren't involved with the NBC sports coverage of the Met Mile Day? <laughs> That's a very funny question. Um, I did, I did a lot of the pre-production um, for the, the Met Mile show working with Billy Matthews. Billy was the producer of the show, but the, because of the COVID situation, um, they're not traveling crews or anything. And I had the ability to pick up this other work. So I did. And, but I, I got to the, so the show was on the air. The, the horse racing show was on the air at five o'clock. My plane from Indy took off at four forty, but the, the Delta, the Delta plane had the TV in it. So, excuse me. So I was watching the horse racing show from the Delta plane. And I think everybody in the Delta plane knew when there were only two horses back at the starting gate, because I very loudly told them. And I think everybody on the Delta plane knew that I thought that the inquiry was not coming down because I very loudly told them. (laughs) It was at one point in time, I fully expected somebody to tell me to come over and shut the hell up. It was, it was awful. So you were basically producing whilst watching. Just, from my chair. Yeah, wanting to make yes. sure they follow the script. Yes, from 40,000 feet in the air. <laughs> I mean, I know it, it's been so challenging with the COVID-19 situation, having not, not having the ability to put the normal crews in place that you were always able to do. And me having been at Belmont, I have seen the fact that obviously last Met Mile Saturday, it wasn't a big crew like I would have seen it. For example, the Belmont Stakes were still a, a bigger crew. How is that? How has NBC Sports, Sports navigated with that? I mean, just quickly rambling back to that topic. No, it's been it's been very difficult. We did the Belmont this year, primarily from Stanford, Connecticut. I was in Stanford with the producer, the director, um, and we were in a control room. There were six of us in a control room that normally seats 30. Um, everybody was kind of scattered throughout the building. On site at Belmont, we had Kenny Rice and Brittany Erton, one stage manager for them, you know, two camera ops and, or three camera ops and um, not much else. It was, uh, it was quite different. I, I, it's amazing. It was an amazing technical feat what they were able to pull off. And I was so proud of the tech crew at, at NBC. They really did a great job. And, but before we leave that, I mean, you know, a hell of a job and a hell of a props to the Naira folks. I mean, the, the Naira TV group there busted their ass and they don't get enough credit for what they do. And they sure as heck don't get enough credit for what they do on Fox. Um, it's a, it's a terrific job. And, you know, they've got a lot of people there that they're very lucky and fortunate to have. And they, you know, the racing industry and the sport is much better for them than for not having them. I feel very lucky to be part of their team. I keep learning every day from the immense amount of experience that the team brings together because they truly have been in the industry for a very long time and are really at the top of their game. I have no other words for it. They're that incredibly good at what they do and they work very, very hard. So I feel very proud to be amongst them and to learn from them every day. And Quickly going back to the IndyCar production, what do you like better, producing horse racing or the other sports? Um, I love horse racing. It's it's it is it's more than what I do. It's who I am. Uh, the other sports are jobs, but I I love working other sports because I always learn things. And even as doing it as long as I can, it's really important for me to continue to learn. Um, and it's two things. I learn what you know. I, I I think, or at least I hope I come back with really good ideas, but I also come back with, oh crap, I never want to do that ever again. Um, you know, make sure I don't ever make that mistake. Uh, so it's, they're very different, but you know, look, horse racing is always going to be home base for me. Do you think there, there are any aspects of other industries that would be very good to implement in horse racing? I'll be perhaps uh, difficult with budget and stuff, but anything cool that you would love to see in our industry? I think that we would be best served by looking outside to other industries in all facets of our, of what we do. Um, you know, just case in point, it sounds so silly, but for IndyCar, the operations manual that they put out for the race last weekend was phenomenal. 
um, every single employee that worked on the show had knew what the COVID protocols were, knew what the maps were, knew what the scheduling was. Um, you know, we do a we we can do a much better job in our business of putting information out. The thing I came up with was when I was watching Formula One racing is that they have three different cameras on every Formula One car. And I thought, well, I guess we can't put any cameras on the jockeys or, I mean, you you can with, um, I think, what is it? Equine Productions has a jockey cam that they put Mm -hmm. on the helmets, Mm -hmm. which is very, very cool and has been used in the US as well. So perhaps that will be something to look into, but just a sheer camera angle and how their ability to straight away tell the story if something happens, I think is incredibly strong and very admirable. I'd love to see that apply to our sport, but I guess it's uh, easier said than done. Yeah, it's much easier said than done. And, you know, especially in our sport, you start to get into safety issues. Um, but I think there's an awful lot of things that we can do that we are not quite taking advantage of yet. And looking forward to pushing that envelope as we move forward. Absolutely. Well, I'd love to go back to your beginning before I'm, I'm going to ask you about HRTV as well as you mentioned that was a very different audience but I very much know how much you were involved with uh, growing that audience but I'd love to quickly first go back to when you were starting out and when you were starting out in the industry and I know that you've been with Santa Anita Park uh, since the 1980s did you always wanted to work in horse racing and did you work in horse racing throughout college uh, you have a degree in history and journalism I, I did. I was my junior year at, I went to USC and my junior year at USC, I wanted to have an internship. So I, you know, knew what I was doing when I graduated. It's something I always wanted to do. I wanted to be a turf rider. My parents thought I had lost what's left of my mind. Um, but I was, I, there was a magazine that's based across the street from Santa Anita here called Thurber to California. And I called there and asked if they had an internship program. And I kept calling and kept calling and kept calling. And I was put in touch with this very nice woman who was the managing editor at the time. Her name is Tracy Gantz. And Tracy said, you know, we don't have an internship program, but, you know, maybe we should. And I was hired for $2.50 an hour. And I would take the bus from USC in downtown LA. It took two hours to get out here. Um, and I changed places in some really horrendous parts of LA County. And I, after like a month and a half, my dad said, you know, this isn't going to work. We're going to have to get you a car because you're going to get killed. And I started working for Tracy and loved it and worked for her when I got out of college for two years as well. And she's one of my dearest friends and she's a multiple award-winning writer now for the Blood Horse. And uh, it's funny how things just kind of work out. I was going to ask you who influenced you the most in your career, who are your mentors? seems that safe to say that she would be one of them? She definitely would be one of them. Um, Jane Goldstein, who was the publicity director at Santa Anita, would be another. Um, Jane hired me in 1986. Uh, Tom Hammond would be absolutely, you know, the, the third one on on the stool that helped support me. Tom um, gave me my first job in TV. I went back and worked for Hammond Productions in 1985, I left uh, Thurber to California and moved to Kentucky. I learned two things. One, I really love television. And two, I am not a Kentucky girl. Um, it just wasn't my, I, you know, it's a great place and there's great horses. It just was not, it, 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 my home is in California. And uh, so I came home um, after a little less than a year and then started working here at Santa Anita. And I have not left. And you're doing a phenomenal job there. What would you say would have been the biggest takeaway or the biggest things that you remember learning from them? Um, wow, that's a great question. Um, that you have to like what you do because it's all consuming. And that, you know, you, you're, you are responsible for your own destiny. You know, you, 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 these are, you know, I, people have asked me a lot, Naomi, and, you know, it's like, oh, well, what is it like being a woman in this business? I've never felt that because people like Jane and, and, you know, to some degree, Tracy, you know, had opened the door already. It, it was never an issue. And you, you have a beautiful family yourself. You say it's all consuming. Do you still get the chance to spend time with them and are they understanding of your passion? 
they understand that this is part of, you know, who we are as a family. Um, my son, Henry, as you know, sort of has grown up here at Santa Anita. He learned his numbers and his colors by the saddlecloth numbers. Um, you know, and uh, one is red, two is, <laughs> it's, two is white, three is blue. But, you know, it's, it's part of who they are as well. It's part of, part of who we are as a family. It's beautiful to be able to share that, the sport you love with your family. I remember getting my mom out to Santa Anita Park and, and seeing what goes on here. She might not know much about racing, but she, you know, she very much enjoys seeing me enjoy what I do. So that's a, that's a great thing. And you had, so obviously you were in racing from a young age. Was there any, ever any time throughout your career that you thought, perhaps I know you cover other sports as well, but that you fully thought of getting out of racing or was it always racing is still, still the, the main love? Oh, there's, there were plenty of times. I mean, I didn't go full-time at San Anita until 1991, 91, 92. So there were plenty of summers that I would fly through my savings account and try and figure out how in the hell I was going to survive until the San Anita, the Oak tree meet came around in the fall. Um, but I, I, it's what I always wanted to do. And, you know, it's my, my dad has always said that he, he makes some degrees, he makes fun of me and the other degrees he's, he's admiring from the standpoint that I've always known what I wanted to do. I've, there's never been a time of, you know, what am I going to do with life? It was, it was always the horses and it was always racing. Well, you've also been very good at what you do I was trying to find a list or look up the numbers and I came across that you have created or been a part of 26 Eclipse Award um, winning pr productions 14 Emmy Award winning production four international simulcast award productions which is with NBC Sports which HRTV which ES with ESPN I mean that is incredible so obviously you've the fact that you say, I knew what I wanted to do, and, and you've been incredibly successful at it. Do you ever look back and reflect and think, this is quite something? No, you can never read your own press clippings. The day you read your own press clippings is the day you get screwed. <laughs> I don't care who you are. The day you read your own press clippings <laughs> is the day you're screwed. I, I've been very fortunate to work on some great shows with a lot of great people. And, uh, you know, I just, it's, that's, I'm, I kind of, you know, every day I kind of can't believe the seat that I'm in. Um, I also every day can't believe how long it's been. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, you ne I never want to stop learning and I never want to stop doing. Well, I also was remembering watching some documentaries back and then realizing that you had produced them, which to me was kind of, like, whoa, <laughs> there's, you have created a lot of award-winning films and documentaries or is there one that really stands out to you or that you enjoyed the most making um they've all been a little bit different uh you know i've had different roles in them along the way but you know i'm, I'm particularly fond of the the one we did on swale um because it was a story that i always wanted to tell and phil gleaves was a friend of mine from way back in the 1980s and I remember him telling me the story of the day Swale died and it's it's a story that again I always wanted to tell and it's really a shame that that horse isn't in the Hall of Fame when you look at what he did and his credentials it's also a shame that Ferdinand's not in the Hall of Fame when you look at his credentials um, there's little doubt in my mind that both horses would be voted in easily if they were on the contemporary ballot but the way the Hall of Fame is right now they have to go in on the historical ballot Hopefully one day. Hopefully one day indeed. And gosh, please keep making all these amazing documentaries. I've very much enjoyed them myself. I'd love to talk a little bit or just hear from you about HRTV. Uh, a fair few listeners will remember watching HRTV, which was a network that you played an integral part of and, and you know, really growing and developing the audience and producing quality content. What do you remember of your time there and what was sort of your fond memories? I really sitting back and being told, hey, we're going to start this network. We want you to run it and it's got to be online in 90 days. And <laughs> it was uh, it was quite a feat, but we put it together. We started with about, you know, 12 employees and ended with about 65. And uh, it was it was quite a ride. 
I can imagine. Do do you remember any of the challenges as well as sort of the proud moments? Uh, there was a lot of proud moments. Um, you know, I'm very, very proud of the production that was done out of there. I'm proud of what we accomplished with what we had. You know, we started with no money and we ended with no money. But, uh, you know, we won, a, we won a lot of accolades um, and a lot of very positive opinions and comments in between the two and had a great group of people. Um, extremely proud to have started, you know, working with people like Scott Hazelton and Christine Oliveris when they first came out of college. Um, you know, a number of the, you know, taking Becky Witzman, who's now the senior producer at, at TVG and, you know, taking her from a, her job as assistant trainer to Richard Mandela. And, you know, we just, we took a lot of people that from the ground up and I'm very, very, you know, thrilled to see what they've done with their careers. A reflection of the ever-changing TV landscape, HRTV ended up being taken over in 2015 by Betfair subsidiary TVG, was ended up rebranded to TVG2. Was that difficult for the team involved? I do know that they've hired or kept on a certain amount of people. I was very, well, I'm very lucky that Terence is now with us here and I know that he was at HRTV as well. Yeah. Yeah, Terrence and it's it, Terrence is great. Evan, um, who's also with you there at Naira as well. Now it's it's a great group of people, and you know I I I think back on those times very fondly, and the, the people very fondly. You mentioned setting up a network in ninety days. Well, what are some of the first things that you do? What do you think of? Well, first thing I always think of are the people. You know, who are we going to get? And how can we? You know, what is it going to look like? Part of the issue with HRTV was in an ever-evolving landscape of what the mission statement was. Um, Tony Alivato and I are, are good friends. And as I told Tony, I'm, you know, I, I, I didn't necessarily agree with what the mission statement was with TVG, but I was always so envious that he had one. Um, you know, we ours changed by the day and by whoever was kind of running the ship at the time. Yeah. I know that you said you don't read your own clippings but from all the honors and awards that you've been given which one was the most special to you uh without question the penny chenery award um penny chenery is somebody that i've admired since i was you know 11 years old and she won the triple crown with secretariat and to be it's an award that she um picks picked the winner up personally and for her to deliver that honor to me was something I can't even really put into words. And, and it came in a time in my life when my mom was ill and it was just, it was, there, there's, there's no way to really kind of sum up what that meant and what it to, to this day still means to me. Penny Cherry was also a close friend of you, right? And for all those that don't know, she was the incredible owner of Secretariat and someone that is massively respected throughout the industry and someone that I've always admired myself, but you had a special relationship with her. Yeah, it, it's, you know, we, I came to know her, as I said, right around the time my mom had gotten ill and, and subsequently passed away. And, and Penny sort of just kind of took me under her wing. And she was living in Boulder, Colorado at the time. And I would go there you know, at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, and we'd have lunch. And it was, I, I think I was, she enjoyed, I, I hope she enjoyed the friendship because I was somebody that she could talk horses with and that understood the horses and understood her relationship with the horses. And she would, I would see Penny on good days and I would see Penny on bad days. And she could be, you know, acerbic and sometimes, you know, bordering on cruel, but she could also be, you know, witty and fun and, you know, great stories. And, um, and she, was, she was really a remarkable, remarkable woman. And a, a pillar of our industry as well, which to be quite honest, you are in a way as well. If there's anyone that is an advocate of our industry, it's you. And I, hence, I'm so grateful that you've taken out some of your time to have a chat with me here today, because I know that you're very busy and yeah, thank you so much, Amy. And I can't wait to to see you again soon. I can't wait to see you either, Naomi. And, and look, you know, the future is in your hands and those of your generation and your peers. And I sure as hell hope we leave you with something that you can build upon. 
I truly hope everyone enjoyed listening to the gems Amy provided us with during this hour. I still feel so fortunate to have gotten the chance to have my mentor on this show. And there is a lot going on right now within our industry as well as outside of it. And like I've said in the past, I want to wish everyone well and to maintain safe and healthy and kind to each other. But foremost, I wanted to highlight how Amy never fails to remind me of the reason we all are in this game, the reason we all love horse racing, namely because of our love for the animal. Make sure you continue to touch noses, as she frequently points out. This actually reminds me of one of my colleagues at the New York Racing Association kindly disagreeing with me when I was saying that Formula One is racing two and hence it's different but but still somewhat relatable to horse racing or to a horse racing fan. Ernie Munich replied saying, but you can't hug a Formula One car. Very true, Ernie. Very, very true. Haven't tried it though. Anyone here a Formula One fan? I have found a few on the backside that uh, follow it a fair bit too. They just started up again. Now don't hide. Come and tell me if you're a fan also. I can't be the only one that likes horsepower in its various forms. That's it for this week. I'll be back next week, like always. Let's make it a date. Who doesn't like a date? Same time, same place. See you then. <laughs>